0: Hello and welcome to the Rock Science Show. I'm Forrest Gordon.
1: And I'm Joanna Rowell. Today on the show, we're going to talk about dinosaurs. Yes!
0: I love dinosaurs. <laughs> right?
1: Tell me, Forrest, what was your favorite dinosaur growing up?
0: Unquestionably, Ankylosaurus, mm. although I'm not sure I'm saying that right. <laughs> These guys had a, a hard shell on their backs. They had a big club on their tail. Like, they, they got the whole offense and defense thing. <laughs> at least that's what I always pretended when I was fighting my little plastic dinosaurs as a kid.
1: Yeah, they were, they were a good one. But my favorite dinosaur was the brontosaurus mm. because they seemed so huge, majestic, gentle, and friendly. Kind of like a gigantic reptilian guinea pig, but eating trees instead of celery.
0: Wait, wait, wait. I thought that the brontosaurus never actually existed. Mm. Or at least, isn't brontosaurus just a popular name for Patasaurus.
1: That's right. And that's just one of the ways our understanding of dinosaurs has changed. Our guest today, Brian Sweetek, is a freelance science writer and author of My Beloved Brontosaurus, On the Road with Old Bones, New Science, and Our Favorite Dinosaurs. We're absolutely thrilled to have Brian on the show, and the first thing we asked him was, what is it about dinosaurs that we find so fascinating?
2: Every stop on this tour that I've been doing, somebody asks me that, and uh, I think it's one of the the most persistent Questions. is that, you know dinosaurs are everywhere. They're in you know our movies. They're in lunch boxes. They're in museums. They're you know sort of the you know, they're respectable scientific uh, enterprise. But at the same time they're you know kid stuff and pop culture kish. So um, I think the reason why it doesn't have anything to do with like the sort of classic. Pop psych example, the classic pop, pop psych example being that they 're big, fierce, and extinct, so therefore they 're these like monstrous sort of creatures, but since they 're you know, totally gone they 're sort of you know safe for kids to approach. You can go right up to a Tyrannosaurus Rex skull, and nothing 's going to happen because it 's been dead for over sixty six million years um, i don 't necessarily uh, buy that though I think there 's you know, some vague things about that that attract us to them, but I think the, the, real, um, the real draw. Something that's much older, I mean, people have been wondering about dinosaurs ever since before there was a name for them. You know, the name dinosaurs only uh, coined in 1842 by by Richard Owen. For centuries before that, you know, Native Americans in uh, North America, um, people in China, people in India, uh, people... uh, ancient Greeks and Romans—they were finding fossilized bones, you know, often dinosaur bones—and uh, they recognized that these were the vestiges of animals that once lived at some previous time. that didn't match anything that they recognized, so they would come up with these sort of legends and stories and, and myths about, you know, heroes and monsters and sort of some previous era when the world was very, very different. So the bones were so strange that they sort of demanded answers about, you know, where these animals fit in relationship to us and sort of our existence. And I think that's still the draw. When you see uh, an Apatosaurus skeleton, or a Triceratops skeleton, or a Tyrannosaurus skeleton in the museum, the same sort of questions about, you know, when did this animal, what did it look like, how did it live, what sort of creature was it, who is it related to, all those questions still come tumbling out of this. And by answering those, we sort of put our own existence into context. So I think that's the main draw, sort of like the mystery of, of dinosaurs, you know, what were these creatures and what was their world like, and by answering that, we uh, you know learn something about our own past history because our own ancestors and, and relatives lived under the feet of these animals.
1: I like that. Our own ancestors lived under the feet of these animals, and in a way, we still do. Birds are dinosaurs, and they're often flying above us.
0: That's kind of a scary thought. Mm. Not just because I don't want to be pooped on by a dinosaur, <laughs> but let's get back to the question of the dinosaurs. <laughs>
1: Yes, the beloved brontosaurus. It never existed. Where did this name come from? How long have we known that the name is redundant, and why did this name stick?
2: Yeah, so um, this is one of the classic bone wars eras era dinosaurs, and it really the story actually starts with a different dinosaur, the dinosaur that replaced brontosaurus ultimately. In 1877, a uh, amateur um, fossil aficionado aficionado named Arthur Lakes um, sent some bones to uh, Othniel Charles Marsh at Yale and these were bones from a long-necked heavy-bodied long-tailed dinosaur and, and Marsh named these Apatosaurus Ajax and Lakes was good enough in the field that uh, Marsh you know, had him go out to another site in Wyoming called Como Bluff and from a, a quarry there called Quarry 13 Lakes and his field crew found the remains of a similarly sized, long-necked, heavy-bodied, long-tailed dinosaur that was, in some minor particulars, a little bit different. They sent these to, to Marsh as well, and in 1879, Marsh you know, named this as a different animal called uh, Pontosaurus excelsus. And you know, during this time, dinosaurs were so little known; you know, nobody really had complete skeletons at all. So a- any fragment, any piece that seemed to be new or different, you could justify, you know, erecting a whole new name based upon that. You know, creating a whole new dinosaurian identity. You know, paleontologists are still sort of, you know, feeling out the, the outline of what dinosaurs really look like. And at the same time, Marsh was in this bitter academic competition with um, a gentleman that was once his friend turned into his rival, Edward Ricker Cope, based out of Philadelphia. So not only, you know, were they kind of um, just try, trying to figure out what dinosaurs actually were, but they're also sort of in a naming contest with, with each other to be the premier paleontologist in North America. So both the brontosaurus and the patasaurus stayed on the books for a number of years. It wasn't until 1903 that another expert named Elmer Riggs came along. He said, okay, well, you know, the patasaurus and brontosaurus, they're, they're quite similar to each other, Um yeah, you know, they're slightly different at the species level. They're different enough to be regarded as different species, but they're they're not different enough to justify having a different genus. They're each other's closest relatives. So then we wound up with the Patasaurus Ajax and the Patasaurus Excelsis and Brontosaurus was supposed to be sunk. But for whatever reason, um other experts and other museums just they they read Riggs' paper, but they, they didn't um you know, put it into their exhibits. So when museums like the American Museum and the Museum at Yale and uh, the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, um, would they put up their own big sauropod skeletons, they kept the name Brontosaurus. So even though the dinosaur is scientifically dead, uh, it sort of remained in uh, the popular imagination, kind of became the epitome of what dinosaurs were supposed to be like, this, you know, stupid, slow, drab, swamp-dwelling animal, and it was only in 1975 when the, the authentic skull of the apatosaurus was finally rediscovered in the collections at uh, the Carnegie, that you know, the, the big image shift happened. The public felt, justifiably, I think, felt that the rug was being pulled out from under them, that this animal never actually existed, and paleontologists kind of knew about it for years.
0: Okay, so the name Brontosaurus was coined due, in part, to an academic rivalry. Mm-hmm. And then this name somehow remained in museums and in our collective of imagination.
1: Right. And when the Apatosaurus skull was rediscovered in the 1970s, we learned that our, or at least my favorite dinosaur, never actually existed, and that the paleontologists knew this all along. It's
0: kind of a sad story.
1: Yeah, and I really do feel nostalgic for the gentle, gigantic Brontosaurus. It's kind of like a unicorn or a Sasquatch. But, in-
0: <laughs> but instead of letting nostalgia get the best of us, and <laughs> our Sasquatch love, yes. let's get back to the science of dinosaurs. I'm curious... How has the scientific study of dinosaurs changed? Hmm. What new technologies have been developed to understand what dinosaurs were actually like?
2: A lot of it has to do with uh, just improvements in technology, or sort of, especially CT scanning technology. These uh, you know, techniques that allow us to look inside bones where previously, you know, paleontologists would just have to hope for like a fortuitous kind of break in the bone to look inside. Like I mentioned, Parasaurolophus before, one of these crested hadrosaurs. You know, when this dinosaur was first discovered in the early twentieth century. Um, you know, the only reason that paleontologists knew that it had a hollow crust is because the crust was broken when it was found. and They could look inside and see, okay, that's hollow. Um, you know, now, you know, and if you wanted to get a look inside a dinosaur's ear or a dinosaur's brain case, you'd have to sort of weigh the benefits of breaking that skull with the information that you are going to get. So now, thankfully, we don't have to do that, um, you know, sort of, and with bigger and bigger CT scanners, are able to look inside bigger and bigger bones. And it also has to do with a little bit of bravery on, on the scientist, scientist part as well, because, um, you know, one of the most important ways that we 're learning about dinosaurs is through histology through the microstructure of their bones, seeing how they grew up, how quickly they grew sort of we can even uh, distinguish some females because a pregnant female dinosaurs, much like birds today, laid down a very specific bone tissue called medullary bone so those are sort of, you know these really important clues about the natural history and lives of dinosaurs are coming from inside the bone that still requires you know cutting into cutting out a slice of bone basically and grinding that down into you know a slide and looking at it and counting you know, all the little uh, osteons and things in there. Uh, Hopefully, with improved micro-CT technology, maybe we won't won't have to do that in the future. Uh, But through, you know, sort of pairing um, new tech and a lot of new visualization tech with old bones, paleontologists are able to study and manipulate bones in ways that they haven't before. And I'm especially excited about sort of rapid prototyping technologies, because one of the, the biggest uh, barriers to scientific communication and understanding is the ability to go and see specimens that are very, very distant. I mean, there are dinosaur uh, bones scattered in museums throughout the world and it can be very difficult to get travel funds, but it's really important to see the actual bones and not just look at, you know, photos and stuff in books and papers. So, you know, if people, you know, scan dinosaur bones or, you know, their slides and they upload those to, um, you know, sites like Morphobank or things like that, and, you know, those can then be downloaded and you have a rapid prototyper. If there's, say, like a triceratops skull that's halfway around the world that you want to see, you could get that image file and download it and basically make a replica of that triceratops skull of almost any size just to have at your desk to actually see sort of the features on on this fossil that, uh, you know, for some of these dinosaurs, that won't work. I mean, trying to make a, 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 a sauropod femur or something like that, you'd need a giant, you know, rapid prototyping or 3D printer to get that to work and take a lot of resources. But all the same, um, you know, this, I think this kind of technology will open up paleontology a lot more if paleontologists get behind it and make uh, sort of the dissemination, communication of, of science, you know, professionally and even perhaps in terms of public outreach um, a lot easier and uh, a lot more fruitful than it has been in the past. So by combining new
0: technology with a study of old bones scientists are able to ask and potentially answer totally new questions.
1: Right, and new technologies give people with many different interests access to replicas of these old bones. I remember a professor here at the University of Chicago once told me that every time you take a fossil out of its box, you're essentially performing a new experiment. You have a specific question you're asking, and as a result, you see totally different things in that fossil. And This is what really moves the field forward.
2: Yeah, the the questions that we ask and how we sort of approach fossils, um, you know, is very important, too. And that and that's something I'm glad that you brought up. It's not just a matter of just improving tech and improving science, but, you know, raising new hypotheses and, you know, sort of being brave about, you know, testing ideas and, uh, you know, sort of thinking of dinosaurs in ways that uh, sort of break the traditional mold. I mean, I, I, that's one, one of the reasons I'm glad to see the recognition that, you know, birds are, are living dinosaurs. This kind of was the slow burn getting this accepted. But now that we know that, it opens up so many more possibilities and sort of lines of research that, uh, you know, bird, we, I was told as a kid that we just never, ever know about the, the biology
0: of dinosaurs. So that birds are, in fact, dinosaurs is one of these brave new ideas.
1: Right. And scientists have evidence that many dinosaurs might have had feathers or quills. I love the idea of fluffy, downy dinosaurs. (laughs) When I was a kid, I had this tiny plastic dinosaur, and I really wanted it to be wearing a dress. So I got my grandmother to sew it, this tiny blue dress. And I think I was ahead of my time. I knew dinosaurs couldn't be as naked as they were portrayed.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But what do we know about feathers on dinosaurs? Mm. Where did this idea come from, and what kind of evidence supports it?
2: Yeah, uh, well, there's no direct evidence that Tyrannosaurus rex had feathers. It, but it comes from evolutionary logic, and it's the same evolutionary logic as when uh, we see restorations of early humans like uh, Lucy, like this famous uh, Australopithecus afarensis, with hair or, or furs that we know that Lucy was a primate, we know Lucy was a mammal, and that you know this is hair, like that is a mammalian trait. So even though we haven't found the exact fossilized um her vestiges of hair, we know that she must have had it. And it's the same thing with Tyrannosaurus Rex. So Tyrannosaurs belong to a bigger group of dinosaurs called Silurosaurs. And that group also contains birds. It contains things like Deinonychus and Velociraptor, things like Oviraptor, things like uh, Therizinosaurus. So it's really major group of, of theropod dinosaurs. And every single lineage within this group has some kind of feather or fluff or fuzz or proto feather. Um, So, and even, you know, two tyrannosaurs, two uh, relatively archaic tyrannosaurs have been found with fuzzy feathers on them, so it's a good bet that rather than, uh, you know, sort of independently evolving, that this was a common feature that was common across all members of this group. And for a while, it was said, well, Tyrannosaurus rex is too big. If it had like a downy coat, you know, it would overheat. But uh, just, I think, last year, paleontologists working in China found a 30-foot long Tyrannosaur, which is about, you know, 10 or so feet just short of Tyrannosaurus rex size, uh, with fuzz and, and, and fluff on it. So, you know, the the size argument doesn't really hold anymore. I think it's just, you know, sort of a distaste for um, what, how science is changing sort of our cherished images. If you talk to kids, they're already on board with it. And there are artists who actually do absolutely gorgeous work. When they when they get the feathers right and they actually study this and they restore this in a, in a very you know, detailed way, the dinosaurs just look as, as fierce and as wonderful as they ever have. It's when people kind of go halfway, then, yeah, the dinosaurs do kind of look silly because you're not actually doing the science of, of restoration correct. And the cool thing is is that so you have Solorosaurs, and solarosaurs have every, uh, every lineage has feathered members. And all the way on the other side of the dinosaur family tree, as far as you can get from, from birds while still being a dinosaur uh, among groups like uh, the Ceratopsians, the horned dinosaurs, um, and some of their relatives, some of those fossils have these bristle or quill-like structures. They're not feathers, but they're very similar in their structure. So the, another form of sort of secondary body covering so we're left with two alternatives either this evolved multiple times in the dinosaur family tree or at the very very beginning the very first dinosaurs had some kind of fluff or fuzz or bristle or quill or or some kind of other body covering other than scales and that was later modified in some groups or it was lost in others so dinosaurs might have been as as a group um fluffier and fuzzier and, and sort of weirder and more bizarre than we ever expected before
0: i don't know what is weirder Those dinosaurs with all the crazy spikes like stegosaurs, or the idea of dinosaurs covered in a downy fuzz?
1: And here's something to consider, especially with those spiky dinosaurs. How did they mate?
0: Wait, so there are scientists out there studying dinosaur sex?
1: Yes! Amazing, right? (laughs) (laughs) So they do this by looking at how birds reproduce, and also by studying biomechanic parameters involved in dinosaur mating. They found some really strange things.
2: Yeah. Um, well, this is something that, you know, it, it seems so so silly or, you know, something that we can never really know about, you know, if that a time machine and you're remaining at a, a safe distance. But, um, you know, through some, some unique fossils and through some evolutionary logic, you know, paleontologists are starting to get an idea of what dinosaur mating was like. And one of the most important facets is that we now recognize that, you know, birds are a surviving lineage of, of dinosaur. So, you know, if we have living dinosaurs... And we've got alligators and crocodiles and gharials, which are the closest cousins to the whole group of you know dino- to dinosaurs as a whole, basically. Features that are shared between birds and crocs can give us sort of a guide to what might have been present in dinosaurs that might not be preserved. So in terms of sort of the reproductive equipment, uh, male crocodiles and alligators and male birds are sort of the archaic forms of, of, of avian things like ostriches and tinamous and waterfowl um they they have a phallus so we know that you know and this is kept inside a sort of um one-stop orifice called the cloaca that you know serves the reproductive and urinary and other tracts in this one thing so we know that dinosaurs probably have to bring uh their cloaca into close contact to make this work um So that's something that we can feel fairly confident about. How they actually went about mating is is kind of trickier. I mean, for a long time, paleontologists thought this was just kind of this frivolous idea, and they could say, okay, well, the male just kind of came up from behind the female and threw his leg over her back, and they brought their tails in the close contact of an artist draw it, and and that's it. It's easy to sketch this out in two dimensions. It's much harder to figure out how it actually works. So uh, during the process of the book, I knew... um, my friend and paleontologist Heinrich Malifin at the um, Museum of Nature in Berlin had done laser scans of a very spiky dinosaur called Kentrosaurus. So think of Stegosaurus, but a lot more spikes along its back rather than plates. And, um, it has been one of the big mysteries is how do these dinosaurs actually manage to do it? So I asked him to sort of like make a double of the laser scans and see if he could make the dinosaur's hump, for lack of a better term, and uh, it didn't work in the traditional way. It's like the, it wasn't even the matter of the spikes. It was a matter of like the female's tail couldn't lift high enough because of certain bones that run along the top of the tail and along her vertebral column, and the femur couldn't be swung out quite far enough on the male's part to make it work. So they must have had some other way to do this. I mean, we don't have exact answers yet, but we're at least trying to take this kind of biomechanical approach to figuring out um, what dinosaur reproduction was actually like. You know, it doesn't have to just be silly. And really, it's you know, for dinosaurs to, you know, rule the world and still exist to be around for over 245 million years, they have to make baby dinosaurs. So we're trying to at least get a little bit more uh, scientific about the way we gauge this. So
0: dinosaur mating is still every bit as mysterious as you might think.
1: Right. Dinosaur behavior, in general, is, as you might think, very mysterious. For example, since brain tissue doesn't fossilize, and we don't have access to time machines, how can we learn about dinosaur cognition or behavior?
2: Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, with dinosaurs, um, like you said, we have no brain tissue to to examine, but we have our brain cases, and those sort of were relatively... um, they're they're not an exact mold of the brain, but they're relatively closely sort of molded to the brain shape. And by looking at the sort of different size of uh, different brain organs, sort of this principle of proper mass, that like the bigger a part of the brain is, the more important it was to an animal's life. Paleontologists can get you know an, an idea of you know how dinosaurs were perceiving their world. Like uh, in the case of Tyrannosaurus rex, it doesn't have a lot of space uh, sort of in its brain devoted to higher cognitive functions, but it does have relatively large olfactory lobes. So we can say this dinosaur really great sense of smell uh, other dinosaurs um, such as some of these um, sort of shovel beaked hedgeauurs things like Parasaurolophus, that also had these crests that they used to make these sort of low um, you know sort of booming calls that would have carried a, a long way they have a little bit more brain space it seems devoted to sort of um, you know these cognitive functions that would might relate to sociality it's really hard to say I mean we can say okay well there, you know this part dealing this part of the cerebrum or these olfactory lobes or these sort of, you know, uh, parts of the visual cortex, they're all, you know, uh, know, smaller or larger in the species of that, so this might be more important or not, but sort of winnowing winnowing that down into what dinosaurs actually did in terms of their behavior, we can't really do that. For that, we have to look at things like... um, pathologies that might show you know, sort of that dinosaurs you know bit each other when they fought, or trackways that you know sort of record evidence of social behavior, or you know hunting behavior, or things of that nature. Um, it's all really part of a whole. There's no like one line of evidence that sort of supersedes each other. But by looking at brains and looking at tracks and looking at anatomy and looking at injuries, you know, sort of the lives of dinosaurs come together in a way that um, is a lot more detailed than than anything I saw when, when I was a kid. I like to imagine
0: dinosaurs playing their skulls like a tuba.
1: It is a wonderful image, isn't it?
0: What else do we know about the sounds dinosaurs might have made? How might they have communicated?
2: Uh, well, a lot of it has to do just with the acoustic properties of, of the crest. So um, in, during the 1980s, there's a paleontologist... Um, he's still working at a John Johns Hopkins university. And, uh, he looked at the crest of one of these dinosaurs. It's sort of this long U bend crest. It kind of looks like, you know, um, almost like a trombone or a horn or something like that. And he actually made a model of this at a PVC pipe and he blew into it and he got this really low frequency sound that might seem relatively simple. But then he also looked at, he took CT scans and he looked at the inner ear of the dinosaur and he figured out sort of what the hearing range would have been based upon the arrangement of the ear bones. And it matched the sort of call that was being made. And other paleontologists have followed up on this and uh, even tracked how, you know, when the dinosaurs were little, they could hear higher frequency calls. And that changed as they aged to hear these sort of really low frequency calls, the sort of calls that like elephants make today to communicate with each other over long distances. So this is reconstructing sound from structure, and it really only works so far for these dinosaurs that have these ornate kind of hollow crests on their head, where there's some, some something to sort of blow air through and see what kind of sound um, comes out. You know, for dinosaurs like apatosaurus or like triceratops or tyrannosaurus rex or um, some of these others unless they're, you know, we don't have the soft tissue to really tell, but I mean, we know that, you know, birds make sounds, and we know that alligators and crocodiles make sounds. They do so in kind of different ways, but it's likely that dinosaurs did as well. They might have sounded a bit more like alligators, because birds have a very specialized sort of um, structure in their throat called a syrinx that's really important to their singing, so it's not like we're going to have allosaurus or ceratosaurus singing in the, in the Jurassic morning, but... Uh, you know, they might have sounded a bit like sort of the rumbles and the growls and, you know, other noises that, uh, you know, alligators made. And a paleontologist named Phil Center even suggested, you know, he, he was actually dubious of the ability of dinosaurs to, like, roar or make those sorts of sounds. I disagree with him on that point. But he did raise the important possibility as well that dinosaurs also might have, you know, clapped their jaws or splashed their tails or, you know, made, you know, sounds in, in, in other ways as well. So, um, Unfortunately, we might, we'll probably never, you know, know these things. But in terms of just imagining how they communicate with each other, there's probably, you know, ways in which uh, dinosaurs were able to get their message across that we could uh, never, you know, it, it's very difficult to uh, imagine without a time machine. It would be fascinating to go back in time to hear
0: what the Jurassic period sounded like.
1: Yes, and there's so many other questions that we could address with the time machine. The National Science Foundation really needs to get on this. Definitely. I asked Brian Switek if he had a time machine. What outstanding dinosaur question would he address?
2: That's tough. Um... People usually ask me, like, what if I had a time machine? What, what period would I go back to? Uh, because I think what I'd like most like to know is, and one of the topics that's uh, you know really contentious in paleontology right now is uh, whether dinosaurs showed sexual dimorphism or not. So paleontologists have been trying to figure this out for a while. Are there sort of differences in size or or any body structures or some other features that would distinguish male and female dinosaurs? And there's been no undisputed case that's been found. There's been you know like over a dozen papers on this subject, but they're all relatively dubious in terms of their their evidence. So it's either we don't have the sample size or the techniques to tell male and female dinosaurs apart from anatomy, or uh, just dinosaurs weren't sexually dimorphic. And you know, either way, you know, either alternative is relatively interesting. Um, you know, I- either way, it's interesting. You know, either dinosaurs didn't show sexual dimorphism or you know they they did, and we haven't found it yet. So I'd love to go back to you know a time period, really almost any time period. But I mean, if I had to pick one, I'd like to go back to the sort of Morrison Formation. Ecosystems where you know, Apatosaurus and Stegosaurus and Allosaurus and some of those other Jurassic classics lived and just you know kind of just watch their natural history and try and, you know find an answer to this question but in doing so I'd probably find out a lot more the trick would be getting back and there's, there's a there's a book called uh, the Dechronization of Sam Magruder by um, George Gaylord Simpson who is one of the most important paleontologists of the 20th century and he env- envisioned something like this where you know the, the hero of, of the story is sent back in time to the late Cretaceous but there's no way for him to get back to the present so he records his you know story on these stone tablets about what he He's observed and everything else. So, you know, if I did get sent back, I'd be hoping there'd be a way, you know, to bring me back to the the present or some, you know, time where I could explain what I had found. Otherwise, I'm just going to be chiseling rocks uh, for for quite a while. Hmm.
0: Being stuck in the past with a bunch of dinosaurs does not sound like my cup of tea.
1: But Switek does have a lot of experience with rock chiseling, or at least with digging in the dirt and the rocks. He's participated in several paleontological expeditions, and I asked him to tell us a little bit about his experience in the field. He told me a really great story.
2: I've done uh, field work in... um... Utah at places like Dinosaur National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, which is in the south of the state. I've also done field work at uh, Ghost Ranch, New Mexico and uh, sites around Ikalaka, Montana, and uh, a site in Wyoming. So I've I've been uh, all over the place. But a lot of the field work I do now is I I volunteer through the Natural History Museum of of Utah, and most of their sites are in the state or just uh, outside it. Yeah, I think one of my my uh, favorite ones. I mean, I haven't found, like my dream is to find you know a dinosaur, an actual you know sort of articulated or partial skeleton that can then uh, come out of the ground. Um, I haven't done that yet. I've only been out for about two field seasons. Maybe this this year will be the one. But uh, my I think my favorite find so far was when I was with the uh, Burpee Museum of Natural History and uh, Carthage College out in uh, Ecolaca, Montana, in the eastern part of the state. And this is in the, the very, very latest Cretaceous rocks, so at the time of Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops and Edmontosaurus. I went to the site called Scott's Microsite, and this is a place where you're not going to find big dinosaur skeletons, but you're going to find a lot of teeth and fish vertebrae and relatively small fossils. It's relatively good for you know, kind of taking a census of who's around in this environment uh, at the very end of the Cretaceous. And during the first hour or so of collecting, I found a lot of dinosaur teeth. I found like a tyrannosaur tooth and a Triceratops tooth, and you know, a couple teeth from small, uh, smaller predatory dinosaurs, um, which is pretty neat. But you know, like everybody was getting those, and. Um, after I took a break and I went back, I uh, was sort of you know, walking over this one little area that I'd been before. You're looking at all these little washes and stuff, looking for stuff that's already basically on the surface that you just pick up. And uh, I just saw this little, like, glint of, of enamel, and I bent down. And it was uh, part of the upper jaw of a, a fossil mammal that contained two teeth in it. So not only to get a mammal tooth, but to get, like, two teeth in the jaw. It's, you know, relatively special. Small mammals are are, are rarely... Down compared to everything else. And it just, you know, it really struck me. It turned out to be um, the upper jaw of an animal called Didelphodon, which was a marsupial. So it's not one of my you know, direct ancestors or anything like that, more of a distant mammalian cousin, but it just really drove home the fact that, you know, mammals were um, around and sort of proliferating and diversifying, even though they're small and sort of shuffling through the undergrowth and the darkness in the time of dinosaurs, they were still undergoing their own sort of evolutionary Radiation when the dinosaurs disappeared, um, that really set the stage for you know the following so-called age of mammals, and you know, but it but it's more than that. You know, people often say, okay, well, dino- the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct, then mammals, you know, that finally allowed this you know major change. But mammals had been around for millions of years prior. You know, dinosaurs really shaped the evolution of our ancestors and their cousins. In a way, if dinosaurs hadn't existed, then you know, we might not exist either because they wouldn't have you know, evolutionary history would have um, gone an entirely different path. Maybe marsupials would have survived and the world would be, you know, very, very different from, you know, what we know today. So it's not only the absence of dinosaurs that made our history possible, it was actually their their presence. Um shaped our evolution in a very real way. So just finding that little piece of jaw was just, you know, really drove home to me that the connections that all of us have to this uh, ancient past. That is a really great story.
1: Doesn't it make you want to go on a dig to find your very own trace of the past?
0: Well, I'm certainly excited about reading Brian Sweetak's book.
1: Yes, it's a fantastic read. Check it out. The book is called My Beloved Brontosaurus, on the road with old bones, new science, and our favorite dinosaurs. I highly recommend it.
0: And with that, it's time to end the show. Thanks especially to our guest, Brian Swietek, and thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more, check out our website at groks.net. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, the Public Radio Exchange, iTunes, and archive.org, so look for us there. From everyone here at the Grock Science Show, including Charles Lee, Frank Ling, I'm Forrest Goulden.
1: And I'm Joanna Rowell. Until next time, keep on grokking.